Have you ever heard someone say something that completely contradicted who they are as a person? For example, a person who's, who you know always lies, right, is telling you about the importance of integrity, right? And you're like, come on. Or a divorce lawyer, you know, talking about the importance of commitment in marriage, right? It's like, that's, that's not who you are. Or a doctor talking about the benefits of smoking a pack a day, you know? Like, it, it just, it doesn't, you know, there's actually ads like that back in the day, like I think in the 30s or the 40s. But now that we know all those things, it's, it's a contradiction, right? It doesn't, the, the message doesn't match the messenger, Well, there's actually a statement in the Bible that if we even give it a little bit of thought is something along those lines where the message does not seem to match the messenger. And that's what our mini-series is going to be on the next three Sundays is rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and then Thanksgiving we'll finish with give thanks in all circumstances. Today's message is going to be about 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Always, But when you realize it was Paul, Apostle Paul, who said these words, you know, we're, we're used to it. We read these all the time. But if you really think about who he was as a person, if, you, if he'd walk into this room and he, he'd be saying, and you're like, Paul, are you being sarcastic? Are you being sarcastic by saying rejoice always? Let's look at Paul's background Paul's joy. Let's think about the sufferings that this man went through. Let's consider the messenger. Let's consider the trauma that he should have had, both mental and physical, from everything that he experienced. Okay, so let's go to the next slide. And please open with me to 2 Corinthians. We're not going to show it on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 23. I'm going to give you a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter Chapter 11, verse 23. This is Paul talking about his sufferings. He says, But I had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers... In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. As this, is, um, this is just, it's wild to think that someone had even experienced all of this in his life. Let's think about this for a second. First of all, he says, I had far greater labors, meaning he worked harder than the other apostles or the people that wanted to be somebody in the churches, meaning he was exhausted. He's saying, I'm exhausted, I'm tired. He says, far more imprisonments. Imagine being 
taken against your own will and, and placed in a cell for who knows how long. Back in the day, they didn't have the same rights that we do. Imagine being placed in that cell for who knows how long, and you're just there, against, completely against your own will. I have trouble having joy when the smallest thing doesn't go according to my will. And yet he was physically taken far more imprisonments with countless beatings, right? All we have to do is just stub our toe and all of a sudden all of that joy in the Lord that we had just evaporates, right? Just in, in at one moment. And yet he had so many beatings that he said they're just countless. I've lost track of them. Often near death. I've been near death a few times, and I'll tell you this, I wasn't joyful in those moments. And for those of you that have been there as well, you know this is not something joyful that you're having. 39 lashes and beaten with rods. 39 lashes is when they would whip people on their back, but not just with a leather whip, but it would have like bones, little pieces of wood, maybe metal at the ends, so it would kind of dig into your skin and then rip out a little bit. Think of, imagine Passion of the Christ. That's what he's talking about. He had, he had these 39 lashes that I'm sure have left permanent physical damage to his back muscles, to the tissue of his back. He, had, he was in permanent pain because of those 39 lashes. I'm sure not a day went by when he wasn't reminded by pain in his back from the way that his skin and his muscles tried to recover. People try to kill him by throwing stones at him. I mean, have you ever had someone who tried to hurt you? Now imagine someone who literally tried to kill you, who hated you so much that they wanted to kill you. Would you be a little stressed out in that moment? Probably, right? And yet, he said, people tried to stone him. He was shipwrecked, adrift at sea. Have you ever been stuck in nature and you can't get back home? You can't get back to a place of comfort and safety and warmth and you're just, you're stuck. I've been stuck before in a thunderstorm on a hike away from home and I was falling asleep with under half a tarp and, and, and there's a mud river un, like below me and I'm falling asleep. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to wake up in, in a mud river in the middle of the night. It was not very pleasant. When I came home, like, Lord, thank you for my four walls and my roof, right? I never appreciated that experientially until I felt that. And that's only happened to me once, once in my life. On frequent journeys, meaning he's exhausted from travel, and guess what? He didn't travel by plane. I'm so tired of sitting. No, he, you walk, you walk across the continent. Danger from robbers. I mean, just imagine being in a dark alley, right, in the middle of the night. And, you know, you're, you're scared, right? You're, you're, you're stressed out. You have high adrenaline, right? Your, your adrenal glands are just, they're constantly working. 
because you're afraid someone's going to try to stab you or hurt you for something that you have, danger from robbers. He says there's danger everywhere, in fact. There's in the city, outside the city. Just imagine being in a constant state of danger because of your job. That was Paul. That's how Paul lived. Not exactly the most joy-producing circumstances. In fact, he says he had danger from false brothers. Imagine coming to a circle, to a home of this, you know, like finally after a long journey and you come to your Christian, you know, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ to be encouraged, to be strengthened. You come and you, and you realize that probably even here there are false brothers there are people who were sent to spy on you, to, to rat out your location, to put you into danger again, to get you imprisoned. And, you're, and you know, it's like playing, if those of you that have played mafia before, you're like, you don't know who to trust, right? You're looking at these people and you're like, you look so nice, but are you actually the good person? There's a constant state of stress. A sleepless night. I mean, we lack sleep for one night. Don't come near us, right? Just one night. That's all it takes. In hunger and thirst, in cold and exposure. As I was preparing this message, I actually asked my wife, I'm like, have you ever been in a situation where you were cold and you couldn't go heat yourself up, like seriously cold, you know, minus maybe church where the AC is like blowing like crazy, right? Like, have you ever even been cold in your life before? She's like, never. I've had that happen to me once, right? Once. I was going on a, my first missionary trip to Mexico. It was in December. I was in high school. And, you know, I'm going to Mexico. And uh, someone's like, oh, would you pat, you know. Uh, so we start driving. We start driving down. And we're driving in, we're driving through Fresno. It was like like 3 a.m., maybe 12, 12 a.m., we're driving, and there was an accident. Our car broke down, and it was very cold in Fresno, right? Uh, December, right? And it was funny because all the girls ran from the one van into the other van, and they packed it, like, completely, right? And it was a sauna in there, and me and a couple of guys were left in the van, and guess what? I didn't pack a lot of warm clothes because I thought I was going to Mexico, right? <laughs> no, bad mistake. All I had was a thin little sweater, and I just remember just sitting there. I'm like, man, this is really, really cold, and you can't, like, escape it. You can't turn the car on because the car is broken, and you can't heat yourself up. And I just remember trying to just sleep it off, and that was miserable. But that was, I just had that once. I had that once, and Paul had that all the time and he says on top of all that my anxiety for all the churches meaning he's always worried he's like is our false teachers going to break in and, and deceive and lead this church away from the truth is he are they going to mislead people away into the wrong side of eternity he's constantly worried about that because he hears about it happening so often parents know exactly how this is you're constantly, a, 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 once you become a parent, a part of your brain is permanently devoted to worrying about your kids, right? It's just, you're constantly worried, like, are they okay? Is everything good with them? Are they, are they fine? Are they safe? Imagining the worst often. Again, not the most joyful of times. And Paul had that for the churches. And yet, 
Despite all of these difficulties that we just looked at, despite all of these things, this mountain of negative experiences, a mountain of pain and suffering, he urged the churches to rejoice always. And my question is, how? How could he even say that? How can someone who has experienced and continued to experience all these things that we just looked at be nothing more than just someone a stressed out, traumatized, bitter, angry, complaining, and depressed soul? How can you be anything more than that when you have gone through all of this? How? How was he able to continue to do anything for the Lord when he went through all these things because of the Lord? He could have enjoyed a a prosperous, wealthy, comfortable life in Jerusalem, in the upper echelons of the religious elite. He could have had all that, and yet he continued to subject himself to pain and suffering for the Lord And then he urged others to also rejoice always. And the question is, how? And can we do the same in our circumstances? Can we also rejoice always? And that's what I want to look at today. How can we rejoice always, not just when we get a raise or when things are going smooth in life? but always. The first point, if we can go to the next slide, it's very important. This is foundational. Joy is a choice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, we've already looked at that. That's rejoice always. And Philippians 4.4, again, Paul writing to the Philippians says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice The key element from this is that joy is a choice or else it would not be commanded, right? Things that are not choices, that are not decisions that we can make are not commanded in the Bible. So we are commanded actually to rejoice, to have joy. So I just want you to realize and probably most of us do, but we have a choice in any particular moment. Whatever the circumstances in your life are, you have a choice to rejoice. You see, we are not, we are not animals that all we can do is respond to stimuli, right? Oh, the, the, little, the little rat got some food, the rat is happy, right? The rat got some electric shock, the rat is not happy. We are not those animals, It's tempting to be like that, to just react to the things that are happening to us, to the stimuli. Good stuff is happening, we're happy, bad stuff, we're sad. Why? Because we are people made in the image of God with a will. We can make choices, and you see, as spiritual creatures... We have a mind that is able to think upon realities that we are not experiencing in the present. We can think about realities that we're not experiencing unlike animals. In fact, we're capable of of thinking about and grasping realities that we've never personally experienced through our five senses. 
This is what Peter, Apostle Peter, talks about in his first letter. He says, 1 Peter 1, 8, Though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. How? We love him even though we've never seen him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The reason I put this point first is because it is foundational. If we do not believe that we have a choice in whatever circumstances we are experiencing, no matter how difficult they are, if we don't believe that we actually have a choice, then the later part of this message will not make any sense. And I'm sure, I'm sure that most of us would agree that, yeah, I do have a choice. But oftentimes, I forget that I have that choice. I, you know, when we stub our toe, right, and that, and that pain just shoots up our leg, there's not like a little sign that pops up like in front of us like, choose your reaction, right? Click which one you would like, the green button or the red button. We, don't, we just go with our first reaction. But we do have a choice. And a lot of times, life is not learning what the right thing to do is. It's, it's remembering what the right thing to do is, right? We already know what the right thing to do is, and we just need to do it. So love is a choice, and remembering that helps a lot. But the Word of God doesn't just leave us with, well, you have a choice, right? Because sometimes that choice is really hard, right? Even though you know you have a choice, you're like, but I still don't want to. It's really hard. And so the word of God offers us so much more. So much more. And the next point, if we could go to the next slide, is we find in Philippians 3.1 and Philippians 4.4, 4, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. And I think this is, this is the key the key to being able to rejoice always, no matter what our circumstances are, whether it's spring or whether it's winter, it's always possible to rejoice in the Lord. There's always room to rejoice in Him, church. That's the secret. And I, I want to turn your hearts and your eyes to our Lord to see Him and to know that there's always room to rejoice in Him. And the question is what does it even mean? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? I think it's another way of saying that the Lord is our source of joy. Or in other words, find your joy in him. So let's look at some specific ways of how we can find our joy in Jesus. First of all, we can rejoice in our Lord's sovereignty and his power. You see, no matter how difficult the circumstances in our life might be, no matter how painful life might feel in any particular moment, we can always rejoice knowing that all is in the hands of our Lord. All, completely, fully. We can rejoice that nothing is outside of his perfect control. 
Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46, 10, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be stopped. No purpose of his. Nothing that he thinks or wants or desires can ever be stopped. Church, let us rejoice in the power of our God. That no difficult circumstances is is ever, ever beyond his control or his oversight. Ever. In fact, if we look in history, for example, Charles Spurgeon He constantly battled with depression. Constantly. And he found deep comfort in the sovereignty of God. Why? Because he knew that his depression would never exceed the limit that God had appointed for it. Whether that be in its severity or in the duration of his depression, he was comforted to know that God would not let it exceed. He knew that no matter how things, no matter how bad things got, they would never get worse than what God had intentionally ordained for them to be. Never. They will never get worse. They will never slip out of God's hands. It will perfectly always move according to his amazing, sovereign, wise, powerful plan. Just like God ordains the limits to the oceans and they do not cross over and does not let them go past their allotted borders, so our God ordains our hardships perfectly and sovereignly. In fact, no difficult experience in your life has ever happened without God's intentional involvement in it. And if you don't believe that, then your God is too small, and that's not the God of the Bible. No, he is not the author of evil, and that's a whole other topic of its own. But God is sovereignly ruling over all matters in our life. And you might think, oh, that's cruel then. That's cruel of you, God, to to give me such a painful experience in my life, but it's not. And we'll see why it's not in just a second. The second reason of why we can rejoice in the Lord is we can rejoice in his love and his purposes toward us. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, what, church? For those who love God, what, church? All things, amen. All things work together for good. For good. This means that not only is God in complete control of all of our circumstances, including the difficult ones, but also that God is using all circumstances for the good of those who love him. And we can rest in that. We can rejoice in that church. No matter what the circumstances are, 
That's why God's sovereignty over our pain and our hardships, they're not cruel, but they're a comfort. Because we know that God is using it for our good. Not only will things never be worse than he intends them to be, but he will always, and I repeat, always will use all of our circumstances down to the smallest, most insignificant nanosecond and down to the most painful hour of our life. He will use all of it together, compiling it for our good. It's like, I don't know if you guys seen this, this, this like painter, the artists, where he's like painting something on stage. He's painting and you're watching you're like, I don't understand what it is, a bunch of lines and squiggles and, you know, dots and stuff. And, and he's painting, painting, painting. And then he gets the painting and he flips it over and you realize it's a portrait of Jesus. And you're like, wow, that's so beautiful. I didn't see that. Well, that's how it's going to be when we're going to come to heaven. When we are there in heaven looking at life upside down, so to speak, we will understand it will come together, all these ugly parts of our life, all these lines and squiggles and things that make zero sense from this perspective will fall into place. And we will worship him. And we'll say, that was worth it. Jesus, that was good. Thank you. And so what I'm saying is we could actually, we could, by faith, we could trust him now. Even though we might be looking at this painting and all we see are ugly lines and squiggles, we, by faith, we can rejoice in him now, knowing that the end result is going to be amazing. We can rejoice no matter what our circumstances are because we know that he loves us. He literally gave his life up for us, laying it all down. That's the gospel, church. That mankind was so messed up, so sinful. All of us, not just in general, but all of us specifically, were so lost in our ways, just, just trying to be happy in all the wrong places. God, seeing our hopeless state, enters into this world lives the perfect life on our behalf, the life we could never live, and dies on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God so that we do not need to experience it for all of eternity like we deserve. And all you need to do is trust in him. Like the robber on the cross who said, remember me when, I en when you enter into your kingdom, just remember me. Cry out to him. He will save you. He will never turn down any sinner that cries out to him for salvation. It says that a smoldering wick he will not put out. Even if he sees there's a little bit of that flame, a little bit of fire, he will take it. He will not reject you. He will not despise you. He will not turn you away. Just call out to him. He wants to save you. So we can rejoice in the Lord knowing his love and his purposes towards us. Three, we can rejoice in the fact that he will never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
That's a promise, guys. That's not a command like the Bible gives oftentimes. That's actually a promise. That's a commitment from God to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm I'm going to be with you. Meaning, in our hardest moments, even when everyone else who was supposed to be there for us let us down, Our Lord is with us, and he always has been. He never leaves our side, ever. We never need to feel alone. He is the sweetest friend. He understands us fully. He sees us like with an x-ray vision. He sees everything about us, and yet he still is with us and does not forsake us. He knows all our flaws and our sins, and yet he promises, he promises to never leave us. So church, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Point number four, we can rejoice in the fact that he wants our joy to be full. Think about that. God, in his inner being, in who he is, he desires for us, his children, to have our joy be full. And we read this, actually, in John 15, 16, and in John 17. These three chapters, back to back. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy that you have in your heart may be full And he consistently repeats this idea in 15, 16, and 17 about our joy being full. You see, Jesus is not content with his bride, with his people, just having a little bit of joy. Like, hey, I'm on a budget, so I'm going to give you, you know, just I'm going to give you 10, 25% of joy to fill your heart and just be happy with that. No. That's not the way he treats us. That's not the way he looks at us. He says, no, beloved, I love you. I'm about to go to the cross and give my life up for you. I'm about to be forsaken by the Father for you, and I'm going to die so that your joy in your heart could be full. I want your cup to overflow with joy. And, And what's crazy is John 17 in the Bible, probably takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where he's, where he's praying to the Father, where he is so stressed about what is about to happen that his sweat turns into great drops of blood. He's so stressed about all that is coming right now. And, and, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, at this time, he prays for the fullness of our joy. How could he even think of anyone other than himself? And yet he does because he loves us and he wants your joy. Not just the church in general, but you, who you are, wherever you are. He wants your joy and he wants it to be full. Full. He wants it to be full and it's important to him because he prayed about it even in the moment of his deepest anguish. And lastly, we can rejoice in the Lord 
in the fact that he is bringing us to glory, to glory. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Matthew 5.12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Romans 5.2, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can rejoice because we have hope. We have a real hope in our hearts that we will see the glory of God himself. You see, there is nothing greater for any person to experience than the glory of God himself. Do you know that? Have you tasted a bit of his glory? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? There's, you know, there's a reason why we're so obsessed with exploring space, right? We just launched a, another telescope that cost us $10 billion. $10 billion and 17 years to build we as a society decided that that was worth it. You know why? Even the scientists don't know why. But the Bible tells us why. Because the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. And we are obsessed with seeing his glory, and rightly so. And so we spend billions of dollars and thousands, maybe more, of man hours building something just to get a better resolution of the glory of God that is in the heavens. Because... The heavens declare the glory of God. And when we look at the galaxies, when we look at the stars, the nebulas, we understand how small, how tiny we really are. That's what the glory of God does to us. The glory of God takes our focus, our focus off of our own selves and our lives and our circumstances and jobs and everything that's going on in my life that, I'm, that I just have complete tunnel vision on. And it opens it up to the greatness of God. That's what glory does in all of space. And all the stars and the black holes, they are just a faint echo. They are just an echo, a tiny, tiny, faint echo of the full glory of the invisible God. And there are so many other echoes in this universe of God's glory. Whether it be standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or being surrounded by Niagara Falls as, as hundreds of thousands of gallons are falling over every second where you can't even talk to a person because it's so loud, or whether it be discovering the beauties of the subatomic and the quantum world that has always been there from the beginning, all of them are shouting glory to our great God. And when we take our minds off of us 
and we put our minds on God, that is when we experience the purest of joys. And for those that have experienced this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And your soul longs for it, it craves for it, because we were made to experience the glory of God. All of us as people, it must be experienced. In fact, Jesus, knowing that us experiencing his glory is our highest good, prayed to the Father again in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's about to experience the wrath of God, he prayed to the Father. He says, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. Okay, that makes sense. Why? To see my glory that you have given to me. Isn't that wild? That's his deepest longing for us. That we wouldn't just be with him, but that we would be with him and that we would see his glory that the Father gave him before the world was created. Guys, that is the greatest news ever, that we as sinful people, as sinners, who we're not allowed, we're not allowed to come near God, we're not allowed to experience God, we're not allowed to, to, to do, have anything to do with God because of our sin, because of our track record, because we permanently banned ourselves from God's glory. We fell short of it utterly. The gospel is that Jesus through his sacrifice, catapults us into glory and we will behold that ancient, eternal glory. And that is of highest good for us. What Jesus was saying in his prayer, he's saying, Father, I love them so much. I can't wait to show them the glory that you gave me. I can't wait to blow their minds with my glory. You see, Jesus knows that at the center of our souls is an infinite craving that can never be satisfied with the finite things of this world. It doesn't matter how many things we try. It doesn't matter how big of a house we get. It doesn't matter what parts of the world we visit, how great of the food we eat, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter because it will never fill this hole up. He knows that the only thing that will truly and infinitely satisfy this black hole in our heart, it is his eternal glory. It's that simple. We were made for God. We were made for God. And when we get to heaven, and when we experience the glory of the eternal God in all of its wonder or maybe I should say, when we begin to experience the glory of God in all of its wonder and variation and intensity, you know what, you know what we're going to say? We're going to say, yes, this is it. This is the thing that I've been looking for my whole life, ever since I was a little kid. This is the thing I've been looking for, and oftentimes in all the wrong places. God, thank you for letting me now finally experience this infinite glory of yours. So, church, when the word of God says 
rejoice in the Lord. We can find an infinite source of joy knowing that he is bringing us into his eternal glory and that the sufferings of this present age, of this moment, they are not worth comparing to what? The glory that will be revealed to us for all of eternity. So, we seen that in order to be able to rejoice always, we must first realize that joy is a choice. And two, our joy should be firmly and deeply rooted in our Lord. Not just, when the Bible says rejoice always, it's not saying, oh, you know, you hit your toe, just, just have a positive attitude. You know, that's, that's not, that's, that's like, you, you can't, you know, that's like putting a sticker on, the, on a hole in your boat, right? You, you, putting a sticker or duct tape isn't going to hold it, right? But the Bible doesn't give us a duct tape. It gives us a whole new boat altogether. Jesus Christ, he is our boat. And the last thing I want to do as, as we finish up this message on rejoicing always, I want to talk about a very specific joy that the Bible talks about, and that is joy in our sufferings. If we can go to the last slide. James 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, And we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We see here in scriptures that not only are we able to rejoice in our sufferings, we're actually commanded to rejoice in our sufferings, right? We're urged to rejoice in our sufferings. And again, the question is, what's the secret Besides all that we just talked about, which I think is plenty enough, but the Bible clearly twice reiterates the same exact thing. What's the secret to being able to rejoice in our sufferings? Are we supposed to just ignore the circumstances that we're feeling? Like, oh, wow, this is really hard, this is painful. Okay, just don't think about it. Just don't think about it. No, that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says something different. Actually, it says that we should think about it. You see, based on these scriptures, look, look at the thought process. James 1, 2. Count it all joy. So consider it joy like, hey, this is, you know, have joy when you meet trials of various kinds. How? For you know. Know what? What do we know? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. So as, as I go through pain, as I'm experiencing pain, my goal is not to ignore it. My goal is to think about the pain, but not to stop on the pain, but to think about what the end goal of the pain is. The end goal of the pain, again, in God's sovereignty and love towards us, is to produce endurance. And when we think about the endurance that we will receive as a result of going through this pain, especially if we go through it well, that gives us joy. We get joy because this pain is no longer meaningless. This pain is bringing about something beautiful. It's an investment, literally. 
Or Romans 5, same thing. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing, knowing what? That suffering produces endurance. James and Paul are saying the same exact thing. We, are, we rejoice in sufferings knowing that this suffering, it's producing endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. As we experience suffering, we are to know something. We are to know that this pain is producing something that is totally worth it. If we see our sufferings for what they really are, we can have joy. It's God's way of developing endurance and character and growing our hope. If you prayed for any of those things, patience, endurance, character, hope, well, God's answering your prayer through suffering. And, and because of that, because we know what it's generating, we know what the end result is, we are able to rejoice when we understand that suffering is a tool in the hands of our God to make us more like Christ, to use it for our good. So church, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice, even in our suffering. In closing, let us remember that joy is a choice. And most importantly, again, that in the Lord, we have many, many, many reasons to rejoice with a deep, serious joy. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are bringing us to glory. That you want us to see your glory because you know that's the best thing for us. And I pray that you just give us joy, God, in the midst of suffering, supernatural joy, Lord, joy that this world cannot give, joy that doesn't make sense in this world, but it makes sense when you look at it from the eyes of eternity. God, I also pray for those who haven't come to know you yet, who are blind to your glory, have never tasted it at all. Or maybe they've tasted it, but they've never connected it back to you. God, I pray, reveal yourself to them. Let them understand that you are Lord. Come to you, surrender to you, and enjoy that fellowship and that life in you. Lord, help us, Jesus. Rejoice always. Amen.